The following reading is taken from John Calvin's Commentaries on the Synoptics. Matthew 13 verse 10 And the disciples came and said to him, What do you speak unto them in parables? He answered and said to them, Because it is given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. But to them it is not given. For whosoever has, to him shall be given. And he shall have more abundance. But whosoever has not from him shall be taken away even that that he has. Therefore I speak to them in parables, because they seeing see not, and hearing they hear not, neither do they understand. And in them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah which says, By hearing you shall hear and not understand, and seeing you shall see and shall not perceive. For this people's heart is waxed gross, and their ears are dull of hearing, and their eyes they have closed, as at any time they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, and should understand with their heart, and should be converted, and I should heal them. John Calvin says, From the words of Matthew it is evident that the disciples did not merely look to themselves, but wished also to consult the benefit of others. Being unable to comprehend the parable, they concluded it would be as little understood by the people, and therefore they complained that Christ employed language from which his hearers could derive no profit. Now, though parables are generally found to illustrate the subject of which they treat, yet the uninterrupted course of a metaphor may lead to obscurity. So then Christ, in delivering this parable, intended to wrap up in an allegory, what he might have said more plainly and fully without a figure. But now that the exposition is added, the figurative discourse has greater energy and force than if it had been simple, by which is meant that it is not only fitted to produce a more powerful impression on the mind, but it is also more clear. So highly important is the manner in which anything is said. Verse 11. To you it is given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. From this reply of Christ we learn that the doctrine of salvation is proclaimed by God to men for various purposes. For Christ declares that he intentionally spoke obscurely in order that his discourse might be a riddle to many and might only strike their ears with a confused and doubtful sound. It will perhaps be objected that this is inconsistent with that prophecy. I have not spoken in secret nor in a dark corner. I said not in vain to the seed of Jacob, Seek me, Isaiah 45, verse 19, or with the commendations which David pronounces on the law, that it is a lamp to the feet, and that it gives wisdom to little children, Psalm 119, verses 105, and 130. But the answer is easy. The word of God in its own nature is always bright, but its light is choked by the darkness of men. Though the law was concealed, as it were, by a kind of veil, yet the truth of God shone brightly in it. If the eyes of many had not been blinded, with respect to the gospel, Paul affirms with truth that it is hidden to none but to the reprobate and to those who are devoted to destruction, whose mind Satan is blinded, Second Corinthians 4, verses 3 and 4. Besides, it ought to be understood 
that the power of enlightening which David mentions, and a familiar manner of teaching which Isaiah predicts refer exclusively to the elect people. Still it remains a fixed principle that the word of God is not obscure, except so far as the world darkens it by its own blindness. And yet the Lord conceals its mysteries so that the perception of them may not reach the reprobate. There are two ways in which he deprives them of the light of his doctrine. Sometimes he states, in a dark manner, what might be more clearly expressed. And sometimes he explains his mind fully, without ambiguity, and without metaphor, but strikes their senses with dullness and their minds with obduracy, so that they are blind amidst bright sunshine. Such is the import of these dreadful threatenings in which Isaiah forewarns that he will be to the people a barbarian, speaking in a foreign and unknown language, that the prophetical visions will be to the learned a shut and sealed book in which they cannot read, and that when the book shall be opened, all will be unlearned and will remain in amazement through inability to read. Isaiah 28 verse 11 and 29 verse 11. Now, since Christ has purposely dispensed his doctrine in such a manner that it might be profitable only to a small number, being firmly seated in their minds, and might hold others in suspense and perplexity, it follows that, by divine appointment, the doctrine of salvation is not proclaimed to all for the same end, but is so regulated by its wonderful purpose that it is not less a savor of death to death to the reprobate than a life-giving savor to the elect, Second Corinthians 2, verses 15 and 16. And that no one may dare murmur, Paul declares in that passage, so whatever may be the effect of the gospel, its savor, though deadly, is always a sweet savor to God. To ascertain fully the meaning of the present passage, we must examine more closely the design of Christ, the reason why, and the purpose for which these words were spoken. First, a comparison is undoubtedly intended by Christ to exhibit the magnitude of the grace bestowed on his disciples, and having specially received what was not given indiscriminately to all. If it is asked why this privilege was peculiar to the apostles, the reason certainly will not be found in themselves. In Christ, by declaring that it was given to them, excludes all merit. Christ declares that there are certain and elect men on whom God specially bestows this honor of revealing to them his secrets, and that others are deprived of this grace. No other reason will be found for this distinction except that God calls to himself those whom he has gratuitously elected. Verse 12. For so whoever has it shall be given to him. Christ pursues the subject which I have just mentioned, for he reminds his disciples how kindly God acts towards them, that they may more highly prize his grace and may acknowledge themselves to be under deeper obligations to his kindness. The same words he afterwards repeats, but in a different sense, Matthew 25, verse 29. For on that occasion the discourse relates to the lawful use of gifts, 
But here he simply teaches that more is given to the apostles and to the generality of men, because the Heavenly Father is pleased to display in perfection his kindness towards them. He does not forsake the work of his own hand, Psalm 138. Verse 8. Those whom he has once begun to form are continually polished more and more, till they are at length brought to the highest perfection. The multiplied favors which are continually flowing from him to us, and the joyful progress which we make, spring from God's contemplation of his own liberality, which prompts him to an uninterrupted course of bounty. And as his riches are inexhaustible, so he is never wearied with enriching his children. Whenever he advances us to a higher degree, let us remember that every increase of the favors which we daily receive from him flows from this source, that it is his purpose to complete the work of our salvation already commenced. On the other hand, Christ declares that the reprobate are continually proceeding from bad to worse, till at length exhausted they waste away in their own poverty. And he that is not even that which he has shall be taken from him. This may appear to be a harsh expression, but instead of saying that what the ungodly have not is taken from them, Luke softens the harshness and removes the ambiguity by a slight change of the words, and whosoever has not, even that which he thinks that he has, shall be taken from him. And indeed it frequently happens that the reprobate are endued with eminent gifts, and appear to resemble the children of God, but there is nothing of real value about them, for their mind is destitute of piety and is only the glitter of an empty show. Matthew is therefore justified in saying that they have nothing, for what they have is of no value in the sight of God, and has no permanency within. Equally appropriate is the statement of Luke, that the gifts with which they have been endued are corrupted by them, so that they shine only in the eyes of men, but of nothing more than splendor and empty display. Hence also let us learn to aim at progress throughout our whole life, for God grants to us a taste of his heavenly doctrine on the express condition that we feed on it abundantly from day to day, till we come to be fully satiated with it. The manner in which Mark introduces a sentence has some appearance of confusion. Consider, says our Lord, what you hear, and then if they make due progress, he holds out the expectation of more plentiful grace. It shall be added to you that here. Lastly follows a clause which agrees with the words of Matthew, but is inserted in the middle of a sentence which I expounded under the seventh chapter of Matthew. For it is not probable that they are here placed in their proper order. The evangelists, as we have remarked on former occasions, we're not very exact in arranging Christ's discourses, but frequently throw together a variety of sayings uttered by him. Luke mixes his sentence with other discourses of Christ spoken at different times, and likewise points out a different purpose for which Christ used these words. It was that they might be attentive to his doctrine, and not permit the seed of life to pass away unimproved, 
which ought to be cordially received, and take root in their minds. Beware, he says, lest what has been given be taken away from you, if it yield no fruit. Verse 13, For this reason I speak by parables. He says that he speaks to the multitude in an obscure manner, because they are not partakers of the true light. And yet, while he declares that a fail is spread over the blind, that they may remain in their darkness, he does not ascribe the blame of this to themselves, but takes occasion to commend more highly the grace bestowed on the apostles, because it is not equally communicated to all. He assigns no cause for it except the secret purpose of God, for which, as we shall afterwards see more fully, there is a good reason, though it has been concealed from us. It is not the only design of a parable to state in an obscure manner what God is not pleased to reveal clearly. But we have said that the parable now under consideration was delivered by Christ in order that the form of an allegory might present a doubtful riddle. Verse 14 And in them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. He confirms his statement by a prediction of Isaiah that it is far from being a new thing if many persons derive no advantage from the word of God which was formerly appointed to the ancient people for the purpose of inducing greater blindness. This passage of the prophet is quoted in a variety of ways in the New Testament. Paul quotes it, Acts 28 verse 26, to charge the Jews with obstinate malice and says that they were blinded by the light of the gospel because they were bitter and rebellious against God. Jerry points out the immediate cause which appeared in the men themselves. But in the epistle to the Romans, chapter 11, verse 7, he draws a distinction from a deeper and more hidden source, for he tells us that the remnant was saved according to the election of grace, and that the rest were blinded according as it is written. The contrast must there be observed. For if it is the election of God and an undeserved election which alone saves any remnant of the people, follows that all others perish by a hidden though just judgment of God, who are the rest, whom Paul contrasts with the elect remnant, but those on whom God has not bestowed a special salvation. Similar reason may be applied to the passage in John 12 verse 38. For he says that many believe not, because no man believes except he to whom God reveals his arm, and immediately adds that they could not believe because it is again written, lying the heart of this people. Such too is the object which Christ has in view when he ascribes it to the secret purpose of God, that the truth of the gospel is not revealed indiscriminately to all but is exhibited at a distance under obscure forms, so as to have no other effect than to overspread the minds of the people with grosser darkness. In all cases, I admit, those whom God blinds will be found to deserve this condemnation, but as the immediate cause is not always obvious in the persons of men, let it be held as a fixed principle that God enlightens to salvation and that by a peculiar gift those whom he has freely chosen, and that all the reprobate are deprived of the light of life. Whether God withholds his word from them or keeps their eyes and ears closed, 
They do not hear or see. Hearing you shall hear. We now perceive the manner in which Christ applies the prediction of the prophet to the present occasion. He does not quote the prophet's words, nor was it necessary, for Christ reckoned it enough to show that it was no new or uncommon occurrence. If many were hardened by the word of God, the words of the prophet were, Go, blind their minds, and harden their hearts, Isaiah 6 verse 10. Matthew ascribes this to the hearers, that they may endure the blame of their own blindness and hardness, for the one cannot be separated from the other. All who have been given over to a reprobate mind, Romans 1.28, do voluntarily, and from inward malice, blind and harden themselves. Nor can it be otherwise, wherever the Spirit of God does not reign, but whom the elect alone are governed. Let us therefore attend to this connection, that all whom God does not enlighten with the spirit of adoption are men of unsound mind, and that, while they are more and more blinded by the word of God, the blame rests wholly on themselves because this blindness is voluntary. Again, the ministers of the word ought to seek consolation from this passage. If the success of their labors does not always correspond to their wish, Many are so far from profiting by their instruction that they are rendered worse by it. What has befallen them is experienced by a prophet to whom they are not superior. It were indeed to be wished that they should bring all under subjection to God and they ought to labor and strive for that end. But let them not wander in the judgment which God anciently displayed through the ministration of the prophet is likewise fulfilled at the present day. At the same time, we ought to be extremely careful that the fruit of the gospel be not lost through our negligence. Mark 4 verse 12 That seeing they may see and not perceive. Here it may suffice to state briefly what has already been fully explained, that the doctrine is not, strictly speaking, or by itself or in its own nature, but by accident, the cause of blindness. When persons of a weak sight come out into sunshine, their eyes become dimmer than before, and that defect is in no way attributed to the sun, but to their eyes. In like manner, when the word of God blinds and hardens a reprobate, as this takes place through their own depravity, it belongs truly and naturally to themselves, but is accidental as respects the word lest at any time they should be converted. This clause points out the advantage that is gained by seeing and understanding. It is that men, having been converted to God, are restored to his favor, and being reconciled to him enjoy prosperity and happiness. The true end for which God desires that his word should be preached is to reconcile men to himself by renewing their minds and hearts. With respect to the reprobate, on the other hand, Isaiah here declares that the stony hardness remains in them, so that they do not obtain mercy, and that the word fails to produce its effect upon them, so as to soften their minds to repentance. Matthew thirteen fifteen, lest I should heal them. In a word healing, Matthew, as well as the prophet, includes deliverance from every evil, 
For a people afflicted by the hand of God is metaphorically compared by them to a sick man. They say that healing is bestowed when the Lord releases from punishment. But as this healing depends on a pardon of sins, Mark describes appropriately and justly its cause and source, lest they should be converted and their sins should be forgiven them. For whence comes the mitigation of chastisements, but because God has been reconciled to us, and makes us the objects of his blessing. Sometimes, no doubt, after removing our guilt, he continues to punish us, either with a view of humbling us the more, or of making us more cautious for the future. And yet, not only does he show evidences of his favor by restoring us to life and health, but his punishments usually terminate when the guilt is removed. Healing and forgiveness are properly introduced together. It must not, however, be concluded that repentance is a cause of pardon, as if God received us into his favor, converted men, because they deserved it. For conversion itself is a mark of God's free favor. Nothing more is expressed in such an order and connection that God does not forgive the sins of any but those who are dissatisfied with themselves. John Calvin's Commentary on the Synoptics